This is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz, and you're listening to The After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College. If you're a fan of The After Dinner Scholar, let me ask you to do us a favor. Rather than listening through our college website, will you subscribe using a podcast app? We're available on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, Apple Music, and Pandora. And after you subscribe, please give us a high rating. The result will be to raise the profile of the After Dinner Scholar and, we hope, attract more subscribers as a result. Thank you so much. The night before Wyoming Catholic College's graduation exercises, we celebrate our seniors with a formal dinner, the President's Dinner, that includes seniors, their families, and friends, as well as faculty and staff. And that happened on Sunday, May 22nd. At the President's Dinner, the college president addresses the graduates. And this is what President Glenn Arbery had to say to the Wyoming Catholic College class of 2022. Reverend Fathers, Chairman Powers, and Directors of Wyoming Catholic College, Dr. Reno, faculty and staff, parents, grandparents, friends, siblings, distinguished alumni, and graduates of the class of 2022. I haven't had the privilege of knowing all of this year's seniors in the classroom where the characters and minds of students emerge most vividly. Sometimes we're surprised to discover that a student who does very well in math or science does not do well in humanities and vice versa. Or they may do better in the outdoors than in the classroom. No two are just alike, which is part of the joy of getting to know them. The seniors that I got to know best were the ones whose theses I directed, John Collins and Brendan Floody. The discussions we had, teasing out the particulars about an education and spiritedness, in John's case, or Brendan's about self-fashioning versus the imitation of Christ, will remain a happy memory. The only seniors I had in class during these four years were in my senior, excuse me, my section of Humanities 302 a year ago. That course on the major literary and philosophic text from the era that began in the 17th century, just after Shakespeare, was about the period of an increasing break with the classical and scholastic tradition and the rise of the modern world. I remember particular classes with these seniors, reading Descartes' discourse on the method and coming to terms with his radical doubt and his emphasis on a strict new method of inquiry. Descartes' vision of modern technological and medical achievement required that he reject this accumulated wisdom of the past. For example, Aristotle and Aquinas as the oppressive burden from which the world could now escape. The technological world has since been realized four centuries later. We have much to praise on the one hand, and on the other, we're still discovering what the intended and unintended consequences were. Some of these consequences Milton anticipated in Paradise Lost, which we also read and which in many ways recasts the story of the fall of man in early modernity. In his travels as a young man in Italy, Milton visited Galileo 
whose observations supported the Copernican understanding of the cosmos, and who's the only contemporary mentioned in the epic. Here's how Milton, Milton describes Satan after he awakens in the lake of hell and moves toward the shore. Satan's shield looks like the moon, hugely mag magnified by Galileo's telescope, which is Milton's comment on the false grandeur of Satan, but also perhaps on the consequences of the change from natural perspectives beginning to be introduced by modern science. Milton's real focus in the poem is on the fall of man, now understood through a new temptation to be as gods with a new kind of knowledge. It's always entertaining to read, preferably deadpan, the description of Adam and Eve when Satan first sees them in Eden. Two of far nobler shape, erect and tall, godlike erect, with native honor clad in naked majesty seemed lords of all. And worthy seemed, for in their looks divine, the image of their glorious maker shone. Truth, wisdom, sanctitude, severe and pure. Severe, but in true filial freedom placed, whence true authority in men, though both not equal, as their sex not equal seemed, for contemplation he, and valor formed, for softness she, and sweet, attractive grace, he for God only, she for God in him. For some reason, these lines always elicit differences of opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Milton uses the apparent inequality of Adam and Eve to set up the great moment in the poem when Eve insists upon separating from Adam and going off by herself, uh, even though Raphael, the angel, has just been down and for four books of the poem warns Adam and Eve about the um, fact that Satan is now loose from hell and, and seeking to ruin them. Um, Adam is adamantly opposed to Eve's plan to go off by herself and still unfallen, Eve doesn't rage at him or burst into tears, but instead she deploys upon her husband that attitude that Milton describes as sweet, austere composure. I don't know why that's so terrifying to me. <laughs> but she criticizes him for doubting her capacity to resist temptation. Adam tries to argue with her, but then suddenly he just can't take it, and he relents. Go, for thy stay, not free, absents thee more. I still remember when, that, when we got to those lines in the class, Hannah Marcel just blew up. I mean, just this huge outburst. He just let her go? She wasn't... Stand up, Hannah, where are you? <laughs> Anyway, um, she wasn't very complimentary about the masculine resolve of our first father. <laughs> Human freedom is a great divine risk, and in Paradise Lost, God anticipates the fall and prepares the incarnation even before the first sin actually occurs. 
So why not just prevent the capacity to sin? I love these lines from book three. When the father addresses the son about the ultimate worth of freedom, not free, what proof could they have given sincere, true allegiance, constant faith or love, when only, where only what they needs must do appear, not what they would? Do you follow that? Right? If, they, if they had no choice, they wouldn't, there wouldn't be any value of constant faith or love to God. So where's the, where's the reward? Where's the, where's the good in that? God doesn't want automatons that are programmed to behave correctly, but free beings, and free beings will make wrong choices. In fact, transgression seems inevitable when inherited piety is made to seem the oppression from which you must have the strength to escape. As I think happened for Eve. I mean, Satan is able to say to her, you're simply oppressed by the way that, that God has arranged things. I think that's how it seemed to, to Descartes, that the whole of the tradition of the past was simply an oppression. Or the thinkers of the first, third estate in the French Revolution, or Raskolnikov and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. If you remember, and I know I'm just going through the syllabus of this course, <laughs> so please forgive me. Um, but in, in uh, Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov asserts his freedom by killing an old pawnbroker. I mean, that's the move he feels that he needs to make to, to show that he is capable of, of doing great things. Now, remember the tenor of those discussions that we had about Raskolnikov, um, the various voices in that class, Olivia de la Viaga, Theo Benz, Marianne Spies, Matt Kubitsch, Jack Swindell, Emily Tchaikovsky, James Green, Janelle Witsani, now very Janelle Bauer. <laughs> All the students in the class at one point or another. There was something urgent about understanding Raskolnikov's murder as a crucial to his gradual redemption, not through the act itself, but through the love of others and the subtlety of providence. You think about um, the character Sony in that novel, but also, you know, Raskolnikov's sister Dunya, his friend Razumikin, all these people who help him, you know, even after the, the terrible deed that he's done. I think the urgency was twofold. In part, it stemmed from seeing the possibility of making a devastating error in your own life. Raskolnikov is not stupid. He's a very bright man. And he gets drawn into a way of thinking that leads to the, to the kind of terrible deed that he does. But some of the urgency also bore on the anticipation of what it's going to mean to take this education out into a culture that thinks of freedom more or less as Raskolnikov does at the beginning of the novel, as the right to assert yourself through the act of killing. Obviously, that's, that's what's going on with, with the whole pro-abortion move. Much of what we face in the contemporary world, and it's not urged upon us with sweet austere composure, defies belief. I don't want to descend into polemics, so let me step back to ask what it is that our graduates carry out into the world. 
What we mean by the education at Wyoming Catholic College, that humanities course, and in fact the whole humanities track, are itself part of the larger conversation of the whole curriculum. A month or so ago, my wife and I hosted a gathering of all the seniors around a big fire down by the creek that winds through our property. And the conversations that night drew upon thought from across the curriculum. What does it mean to have this education? I was thinking over the weekend about what it takes to learn anything complex. And I thought, say about how I learned baseball. I use this example, by the way, in homage to our graduating senior, Felicity Amorose, who did her oration on baseball and who, to my mind, knows about as much about the game as anybody I know. In middle Georgia, where we grew up, we didn't learn the game by studying a rule book or even by little league coaching. It was as though the game simply existed, and we learned it by playing it. Somebody's squared off t-shirt would be home plate in Mr. Cater's backyard, and a makeshift arrangement of bases and foul lines would define the field. An out wasn't a mere concept. Try explaining an out to someone who doesn't know the game. But the experience of swinging and missing three times or not being fast enough to beat a throw to first base. All of us learned the game by playing it. Once we knew how to play, we also knew how to judge the play of others regardless of how good we were ourselves. The same might be true of learning to drive or run a business or repair a car or program computers or build a house. In everything from card games to recipes, there's a great deal of difference between what's notional, that is what you just have in your head about it, and what's actual. So what are we talking about with the education at Wyoming Catholic College? Obviously, you can't learn rock climbing and horsemanship without doing them. But what are we talking about when we ask students to read and discuss the Iliad and the Odyssey, or to work through Euclid proofs, or learn Latin by speaking it? Last night at the senior dinner, Dean Washett described the luminous white horses of the Thracian king, Rhesus, which become the unexpected reward that Diomedes and Odysseus win from their spying raid on the Trojans in Book 10 of the Iliad. Mr. Washett wasn't drawing upon a summarized Iliad, but on the real experience of reading and talking through the poem. Students discuss what the episode means in the context of everlasting glory, but also what it feels like to see greedy little Dolan, who aspired to possess the horses of Achilles, shivering in terror before the two Greek heroes who capture him. In four years of such experiences of the imagination and the intellect, the outdoors and the classroom, the chapel and the confessional and the late night conversations in the dorm or around the fire, something begins to emerge from what the poet Wallace Stevens calls the whole, the complicate, the amassing harmony. How does that affect students? 
Just this morning, I read a reviewer's comments on the new book by Dr. Reno's colleague at First Things, Mark Bauerlein, diagnosing the origins of woke ideologies in those who don't have an education like this one. In the absence of the, of the literature, religion, music, and art that once conveyed the range, depth, tragedy, and complexity of life, says Bauerlein, young people become susceptible to utopian illusions. What illusions? Well, the illusion that everyone can be happy, for example, or that people are either wholly innocent or guilty or that the world can be made whole by casting the guilty out. That strikes me as a brilliant analysis of what my grandmother would have called notions, which was her term for utopian illusions. Our students, by contrast, have the increasingly unique experience of the presence of the literature, religion, music, and art that convey the range, depth, tragedy, and complexity of life. Not only that, but they learn limitations and possibilities from what we call God's first book, nature itself, and its beauty and hard reality. We say in our mission statement that our graduates love truth, think clearly, and communicate eloquently, engaging with the world as it is. True as that is, it says too little about the transformation that they undergo not by becoming something else, but by becoming more fully themselves. That process is not linear, and it does not stop with graduation. That night around the fire down by Squaw Creek sticks in my mind, partly because of the conversations we had about the science and philosophy and fiction, but also because of something I read recently about the relation between the mathematical world of proofs and the actual world. One particular number appears to guide the lengths of, of meandering rivers, writes Simon Singh. He points out that an earth scientist at Cambridge University has calculated the relation between the actual length of rivers from source to mouth and their direct length as the crow flies. You see what he means? There would be this direct length, but then the actual length of the river as it meanders is a different matter altogether. He says, although the river, excuse me, although the ratio varies from river to river, the average value is slightly greater than three. That is to say that the actual length is roughly three times greater than the direct distance. In fact, the ratio is approximately 3.14, which is close to the value of the number pi, the ratio between the circumference of a circle and its diameter. In other words, if the length as the crow flies is a mile, the actual length is 3.14 miles. On our property, for example, Squaw Creek comes in from the south, turns sharply westward, undulates through various serpentine loops and around small islands, and then flows more or less due north to the edge of the property. Thinking about this relation between the creek and the students who gathered beside it that night, I thought about what we might say 
about the inevitable wanderings of these seniors that go into making up the course of a life. The meanderings of a river approximate pi. Suppose that all those twists and turns seen from the right perspective arrange themselves into a perfect circle. This is the kind of mathematical speculation only someone in literature would indulge in. <laughs> Call the center of this circle, as Eliot does, the still point of the turning world. I'm reminded of Odysseus in his travels and his long circling back to Ithaca, which you graduates read about in your first semester. I'm reminded of the homecoming that Eliot describes in Little Gidding, which you just read in your last semester. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. I suspect there's a way that you now see the very beginning of this education for the first time, thinking back to Gilgamesh and Homer. But you might also remember Dante. The final vision of the Paradiso is the circle imprinted with the human image, which is itself conformed to the straight lines of the cross. All the wandering has its center in your capacity to love God and the truth, not as something forced upon you, but as what truly allows you freedom and room to move in new directions and be bold in your choices and ambitions. I know that you do not harbor utopian illusions and that this education has given you instead a sense of reality which fosters real hope and aspiration. As Milton might put it, and in fact did put it, the world is all before you. Where to choose your place of rest and providence, your guide. May God bless you all.